Good morning and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. The terrorist group Hamas seeks to extend a pause in fighting as a fourth group of hostages is set to be released today. Here how Israeli officials reacted with time for the temporary truce running out. President Biden gives remarks on the hostage release and Americans still believe to be held. Find out what the president wants to see happen next. A U.S. Navy warship responds to a distress call off the coast of Yemen yesterday after an Israeli-owned tanker had been seized. Pro-Palestinian protesters shut down a busy Manhattan bridge. Find out what they were demanding. Black Friday is one of the busiest shopping days in the holidays. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to get a deeper look at American spending this season. And we take you on a tour of some of the settings of blockbusters filmed in the Big Apple, from action to adventure to comedy. We learn from a tour guide why New York City attracts the cinema. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Monday, November 27th. And 41 hostages were released. That's after seven weeks of captivity. What a re relief. Yes, it is. And the reports are showing that they had to use plastic chairs as beds. They were living off bread and rice. And they had to wait hours just to get access to a bathroom. Yeah, well, that's certainly, it's, um, I can only imagine how the families must feel to finally be reunited. Um, but in today's top news, developments over the weekend in the Israel-Hamas war. Today is the last day of the deal to temporarily pause fighting. Hamas is now looking to extend the pause by releasing more hostages in exchange for more prisoners. Israel says it's open to the exchange as for the terms of the original agreement, but vows to resume its offensive once it ends. The Hamas terrorist group released a third group of hostages yesterday in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. The group included four-year-old dual U.S.-Israeli citizen Abigail Idan. The toddler saw her parents murdered by Hamas on October 7th. She's now reunited with family in Israel after spending her birthday last week as a captive in Gaza. 13 Israelis were released yesterday. An 84-year-old woman in the group was hospitalized and is in critical condition. Also released outside of that deal yesterday were three Thai nationals and an Israeli-Russian dual citizen. Hamas is required to release a fourth group of hostages today under the deal brokered primarily by Qatar. 58 hostages have been released during the pause so far. 13 Israeli women and children each day and several foreign nationals outside the deal's terms. Israel released close to 120 Palestinian prisoners in the exchange. President Biden also says he hopes the pause can go on as long as hostages are being freed. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hostages coming home. After seven weeks spent in captivity, dozens of hostages kidnapped by Hamas have returned home. The four-day pause that began Friday reunited loved ones and allowed aid into Gaza. A delay in the release Saturday threatened to derail the deal over the specific terms. Hamas now says it wants to extend the truce after releasing a third group of hostages. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says one complicating factor is that other terrorist groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad are holding hostages too. Four-year-old U.S.-Israeli Abigail Idan was among the group of hostages released Sunday. 
Her grandfather, Carmeladon, says he simply could not believe she was back and thanked President Biden for his help. I thank Biden very much. We love him for all the help he's offered us and also for the American people. Thank you very much for your continued support. We are a democracy. Thank you. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday said he told Biden Israel welcomes the framework of the deal to temporarily pause fighting if it includes the release of 10 additional hostages a day, but that Israel's military campaign to eliminate Hamas and free all hostages will resume with full force once the pause ends. Israeli President Isaac Herzog says the option to extend the pause was always there in the deal and that Hamas can definitely release many more hostages. They kind of said that they don't know where the whereabouts are, that looks to us totally false because they've been controlling Gaza to the last iota for the last 20 odd years uh, in a very cruel regime that didn't let anybody move without their permission. Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Michael Herzog, further clarified Israel's position, saying Sunday the agreement is to pause, not cease fire, and that operations in Gaza will resume once it's conclusive that Hamas is unwilling to release more hostages. We cannot allow ourselves to have Hamas continue to rule Gaza, rearm, regroup, and strike again. And they will do so, because they did so five times since they took over Gaza in 2007, and they are saying that they will do so. 39 jailed Palestinians were released in Sunday's swap, none convicted of murder. The ambassador says there's a distinction to be made between the hostages and prisoners being exchanged. The prisoners that we released are people who were convicted uh, for participating in terror attacks. Uh, let's don't forget that Yichir Sinwar was released in such a deal by Israel in 2011. Look what we got. Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar was part of a thousand-plus prisoner swap in 2011 for a single Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. He was held hostage by Hamas for five years. Sinwar is now suspected to be one of the main organizers of the October 7th terrorist attacks. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israel's military says it's eliminated five senior Hamas commanders just prior to the pause in the war. As for humanitarian aid, the IDF says a 200-truck convoy of food, water and medical supplies entered Gaza through the Rafah crossing yesterday. And President Biden reacted to the latest releases yesterday, saying he wants to keep building on the results. The president also confirmed that Abigail Idan was among those released and was safe in Israel. Here's President Biden. You know, the deal calls for, for, every, for every 10 hostages released to extend another day. So I'm hopeful this is not the end. It's going to continue. But we don't know. And, uh, but I get a sense that um, all the players in the region, even the neighbors who aren't in, have been directly involved now, are looking for a way to end this so the hostages are all released and Hamas is it is completely, uh, how can I say it, no longer in control of any portion of Gaza. Authorities believe nine other Americans are still held hostage by Hamas. That includes two women, but it's unknown if they're all alive. Biden says he is hopeful the others would be released. International mediators led by the U.S. and Qatar are trying to extend the pause. For more on the hostage deal, we speak to Avi Malamed, who is a former Israeli intelligence official and founder of the Inside the Middle East Institute. 
Avi, thank you so much for your time this morning. Do you expect the truce to be extended? Kevin, good morning. Thank you for having me. Look, it's not clear. Um, there is a possibility it will be extended. It seems like, roughly speaking, it's the interest of both sides, meaning Hamas would like to um, endure and, and prolong this uh, truce as much as possible. Israel would like to have back as soon as possible uh, uh, all the hostages. So on its face, yes, it looks like there are, there are good reasons to, to expect that uh, it will um, continue. But at the same time, we also have to remember it's a very fragile and fluid situation. Things could change on the ground. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see what will be the next couple of hours and, of course, the next morning. So what does the Israeli War Cabinet have to consider in deciding whether or not to extend the pause? very simple to see if Hamas is coming and saying, OK, we have another uh, deal and now we are going to release more hostages. If Hamas fails to do that, Israel will probably resume the fight. Right. And this could be a matter of a few weeks if they extend the pause to get all of the remaining hostages out. What complications would that present to the IDF in terms of Hamas regrouping? Well, obviously, this is one of the things that I guess the war cabinet takes into consideration. We understand, of course, that Hamas is trying to, um, Hamas, by prolonging this whole process, trying as much as possible to slice that to small quotas um, of hostages released, is trying to, to obtain two objectives. One is to regroup itself, and the other thing, of course, hoping that it will kind of like dissolve uh, the Israeli military momentum and leading in the end to the fact, to, to point where Israel will, will decide to stop the war. I think that the Israeli Defense Force, as far as they are concerned, and their uh, war plan is uh, basically building on the next phases. It may cause some delay, but in the end of the day, we have to remind ourselves that the Israeli um, order, the Israeli government orders to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, has not changed. It remains as it was. There are two objectives: to bring the hostages back and to end Hamas rule over Gaza Strip. So, Avi, what about the hostages in captivity by groups other than Hamas? Do you expect that those would be freed too? Well, that's a significant question. Look, um, uh, Israel always said, and rightly so, that as far as Israel is concerned, the, 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 the address in Gaza Strip is Hamas. Hamas governs Gaza Strip. And so that will be, I guess, Israel's formal position. Obviously, Hamas... Uh, will try to argue and argue that he doesn't have in its possession all the hostages, which may be the case. But on the other hand, we have to remember that Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza Strip cooperates. They have a joint command room, and they definitely know to communicate when they need. So the bottom line is very simple. If Islamic Jihad is holding refugee uh, hostages, Hamas has the channels of dialogue with Islamic Jihad, and Hamas has to make sure that these hostages will be released as soon as possible. Again, the major pressure card that Israel holds against Hamas in this whole process is the military one. If Hamas continues to play games or if he's going to try and to postpone the process with what kind of justifications and excuses, Israel um, should and could immediately apply its military power to make clear to Hamas that it will not stand, that Israel is not going to play ball with Hamas game and Hamas is expected to release the hostages as soon as possible. So, Avi, you touch on Hamas governance. What is the status of aid to Gaza and the civilians there that's part of this deal? Do you expect that Hamas will steal it or it will make it to the civilians? 
Look, the, the, the aid is streaming to Gaza Strip, to the best of my understanding, from one, one major location. This is from the Rafah crossing in Egypt. Um, um, the trucks are coming from uh, that crossing. Um, and, and it mostly goes to the southern part of Gaza Strip, where most of the Gaza civilians are right now located. There is another segment left in the northern part of Gaza Strip. One of the things that um, is very bothering is, other than the fact that Hamas will try or has tried to steal uh, or to confiscate some of the aid for its own people, meaning for its militants and, and commanders. Uh, one other thing that is very bothering and uh, concerning is that Hamas uh, reportedly, and I saw some reports coming from within Gaza Strip, um, set barriers, um, uh, an obstacle, deliberately blocking the, the, the transfer of the trucks to the northern part of Gaza Strip, where those trucks are supposed to go to the civilians. The reason Hamas did that apparently was not so for much for confiscation, but mostly arguing that as long as the aid does not make its way to the northern part of Gaza Strip, Hamas is not willing to continue with the process of the um, deals of the quotas uh, of releasing the hostages. So this is one of the things Hamas is trying to do on the ground, again, trying to use um, the issue of humanitarian aid in a way that basically could support Hamas or at least Hamas tries to use that in a way that it supports its governance or its enduring rule in Gaza Strip and trying to delay and postpone as much as possible the continuation of Israeli military, military campaign that in the end of the day is supposed to bring Hamas rule uh, in Gaza Strip to an end. Well, thank you so much for your update. Avi Malamed, former Israeli intelligence officer and founder of the Inside Middle East Institute. Thank you. Shalom. And one of the recently freed hostages is an 85-year-old woman. Now she wants to work for the release of others who remain captive. Here's the story. As some hostages are being released, their inspirational stories are coming to light. Yafa Adar is an 85-year-old woman taken captive during the October 7th terror attack. What kept her going during her many weeks of captivity? Her granddaughter explains. I can say that she's tough, and I can say that uh, she, she said that she was thinking about the family a lot, and uh, that uh, it helped her survive, and that she could hear the, the voices of the great-grandchildren calling her, and that it gives her a lot of power. Despite gaining freedom, Yafa Adar still faces significant challenges. She's now uh, trying to realize what's happening here and uh, about a lot of uh, friends and neighbors that are uh, either dead or kidnapped from the kibbutz and about Tamir, her uh, oldest grandson that is also a hostage and uh, that she has no house to return. But she wants to keep fighting for the release of other hostages. So she's like, she's all in, just uh, want to know how can she be part and how can she help. But also we're telling her right now, please start from recovering, from taking care of yourself. And, and then uh, we will think about how can she help. But right now she comes first. Mrs. Adar will not be able to return to her home as large parts of the kibbutz were destroyed in the Hamas rampage. 
The family is now discussing what would be the best place for her to live in safety. Attackers were thwarted in their attempt to seize an Israeli-linked tanker yesterday. A U.S. Navy warship responded to a distress call from a commercial tanker in the Gulf of Aden. It was seized by armed individuals. U.S. officials said yesterday the vessel is now safe. The tanker was identified as the Central Park by the vessel's company. Officials did not identify the attackers and no group immediately claimed responsibility. The USS Mason, with help from Allied ships, demanded the attackers release the tanker. Five armed individuals tried to escape on a fast boat but were chased by the U.S. warship and they eventually surrendered. The statement added that two ballistic missiles were fired from Houthi-controlled parts of Yemen toward the general direction of the USS Mason and the tanker. But they landed about 10 nautical miles away from them and caused no damage or injuries. The incident is the latest in a series of attacks in Middle Eastern waters since the onset of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And after the break, the Senate is looking to bring an aid package to the floor, providing military aid to other nations and potentially bolstering U.S. borders. Embattled Congressman George Santos says the math doesn't look good on his remaining in Congress. We have the latest on a looming expulsion vote. The world of college football and politics collided over the weekend as former President Donald Trump makes a visit to South Carolina. A new endorsement for former President Trump's re-election. Former Kansas Governor Jeff Coyler said he would offer his support. Find out the reasons behind his decision when we come back. Good to have you back. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer says he'll bring a national security package to the floor this week that would provide aid to Israel and Ukraine. The package may include also money for border security. Schumer addressed these priorities in a letter to colleagues released yesterday. Even if the national security measure passes the Senate, it will likely face an uphill battle in the GOP-controlled House. Many conservatives have objected to providing more aid to Ukraine. Schumer also says he'll bring up a resolution to temporarily change the Senate rules. It would allow members to bypass a current hold on military promotions. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has blocked promotions over the Pentagon's abortion policy. It uses taxpayer money to pay abortion travel expenses for service members. And Congressman George Santos is not feeling optimistic about his future in Congress. The embattled representative believes he will be expelled following a scathing House Ethics Committee report. The report detailed significant evidence of lawbreaking by Santos. During a Friday conversation on X, Santos said he had done the math repeatedly on the possible vote and that it didn't look good. House Ethics Committee Chair Michael Guest introduced a resolution to expel Santos once members return from the Thanksgiving break. Santos has survived two expulsion votes before, but many who opposed the effort then now say they support it. The ethics report says Santos used campaign funds for personal purposes, including purchases at luxury retailers and adult content websites. 
Representative Dean Phillips, who is challenging President Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, says he will not seek another term in Congress. The announcement comes several weeks after he launched a challenge to President Joe Biden. Phillips says it's time to pass the torch after three terms in the U.S. House. The congressman launched a presidential bid in October. At the time, he said he believed former President Trump would triumph over President Biden if both were nominated, adding that he thinks it's imperative there is another option to consider before it's too late. Phillips was the first Democrat in an elected office to announce a challenge to President Biden. The congressman says his campaign will focus on problems such as rising costs and health care access. Former Kansas Governor Jeff Collier is endorsing former President Trump for re-election. Collier made his statements in favor of the former president in a Newsweek column last week following a visit to Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Collier said his endorsement is based on the former president's promise to lower health care costs and drug prices. He added that a new Trump term would also see speedier medical treatments, protection of Medicare, and an end to the overdose epidemic. According to Collier, President Trump would also remove red tape in research and development of new and alternative medical treatments. The former governor also voiced his support for President Trump based on his immigration policies. He said that the American people deserve a president who is committed to securing the nation's borders and ending the ongoing opioid crisis. And former President Donald Trump was in South Carolina on Saturday. The presidential candidate attended a college football game alongside more than 80,000 fans. Trump arrived at the stadium to chants of We Want Trump from fans at the game. A campaign video shows Trump distributing boxes of popcorn to an enthusiastic crowd, many holding up their cell phones to take pictures of him. Yeah, that's a lot of people taking videos. That's certainly a lot. That's certainly a big crowd and very enthusiastic of Trump. Yeah, they had a guest appearance, and there he is in the box. Yeah. Uh, well, he was at least set to go to the box. And another video shared by his campaign shows the 2024 GOP frontrunner waving to fans at the game from the press box while many waved back and cheered. At halftime, Trump walked onto the field with Governor Henry McMaster with the crowd erupting in loud cheers along with some isolated boos. The former president walked around, posed for photos and waved to the fans. The Palmetto Bowl featured South Carolina versus Clemson University with Clemson coming up victorious. And recent polls have shown that Trump is topping Biden. Now for some analysis on Trump's appearance at the football game between Clemson and South Carolina is Bart Marcois, a former presidential campaign policy advisor. Bart, thank you for talking to us about this. How significant is it that Trump drew cheers from the crowd in the Palmetto Bowl, which is Haley's backyard? Oh, it's a, it's a perfect Trump maneuver, Kevin. It's, a, it's exactly the kind of thing that he does. He understands pop culture. Uh, politics is downstream of culture and sports is culture and Trump understands that. He showed up in a place where he knew he would be, uh, he would be cheered by the fans. And, and if Nikki Haley appeared in that, in that bowl game, she would have a much more mixed reaction from the crowd than Trump had. Well, and we've seen Trump pull off things like flipping burgers at a fraternity and so forth. So he's definitely in tune with that kind of culture. Trump is up 49% to Haley's 20% in the early voting state of South Carolina. This is according to a poll by 538. If Haley isn't able to best Trump in her own state, is it possible for her to do this nationally? 
No, it isn't. Um, you know, people forget. That lots of people in the last maybe 15 or 20 years have become armchair pundits talking about demographic uh, characteristics, especially when they're looking at, uh, at a, a vice presidential candidate or a running mate or a presidential candidate. They say, well, Nikki will get this demographic or that demographic, and Trump is restricted to white males because he's a white male. The most important uh, uh, characteristic somebody can bring to a race is to win in state by state. And if she can't beat Trump in her own state, there's no way that she can beat him in New Hampshire or in Oklahoma. And you talk about demographics. Even Republican strategists have told me that there is an increase in the black vote of about 10 or more points for former President Trump. And actually, that's Clemson. That's Haley's alma mater. So maybe some of those isolated boos are from diehard Haley fans there, you say? That could be. That could be. Uh, they may have, uh, I don't know where McMaster went to college, uh, but if he went to South Carolina, then that's, uh, then uh, that's, uh, that's the answer to that question. So Bart, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee says that Trump is in total command of the Republican primary. Considering Trump's polling over the past year or so, is there any way that another GOP candidate can beat him? No, no, and, and there's no way that anybody else can beat him. Anybody on the Democrat side can beat him either. Uh, he, the, he is running really, <clears throat> he's running against two parties. He's running against the Democrat party and the Republican establishment and people from both parties, black, white, Hispanic, uh, South Asian, um, are tired of the uniparty system. They feel like they don't have a voice. We see people pandering to us during election campaigns and then not delivering once they're in office. And Trump is the unifying figure among all of those currents. And if he's not on the ballot, if he's not at the top of the ballot, 40%, 35% of the Republican Party voters that we've seen in the last six years will simply not show up. So, Bart, we've seen President Biden sort of doing some damage control here, putting out his talking points guide over the Thanksgiving discussions, saying what to say if someone says the economy was better under Trump. Now, job, jobs reports have been pretty good for Biden, but there's still that sticky inflation. So there's a lot of domestic affairs that need to be handled here. But what does President Trump need to do in terms of foreign affairs in order to appeal to the American public? Really, the same thing he has to do in terms of domestic policy. All he has to do is say, are you better off than you were when, when, uh, when I was president? Do you remember what things were like when I was president? And, and we had no foreign wars when Trump was president. We had a low cost of living, and that was attributable largely to energy prices and Trump's energy, you know, all in on energy production, not just on oil and gas, but on all fossil fuels, on all uh, green fuels and on nuclear, on all possible energy generation, wind, solar, uh, uh, hydro, everything. That's the source of American power is American energy production. And, and it's the source of funding for the wars that we're seeing overseas. When gas and oil prices are high, then Russia and Iran have lots of money to make mischief.
Yeah, I'm pulling out the facts box. Trump had seen a net energy export in the United States, and Biden canceled the Keystone Pipeline and is pushing for green energy. So Bart Marcois, presidential, former presidential campaign policy advisor, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And coming up, authorities are on the hunt for a suspect who is alleged to have carried out a hate crime against several Palestinian students. Pro-Palestinian protesters gather at one of the busiest bridges in Manhattan. Find out what they were demanding while blocking traffic for hours. Six teenagers are on trial today in Paris, accused of involvement in the beheading of a French teacher by a suspected Islamist in 2020. We have more on the trial. China continues to grapple with the surge of respiratory illnesses, overwhelming hospitals. We have more on the situation after the break. Welcome back. Derek Chauvin's lawyer says his family received no updates after he was stabbed in prison. Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder in the 2020 death of George Floyd. He was reportedly seriously injured in the attack. He is now in stable condition and expected to survive the attack. Entities Cost MS has more updates on the situation. Derek Chauvin was stabbed on Friday by another inmate at the Federal Correctional Institution in Tucson, Arizona. His lawyer, Gregory M. Erickson, slammed the lack of transparency by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The facility has previously been plagued by security lapses and staffing shortages. Erickson said that the Chauvin family has obtained little information about the attack from federal officials and has been contacting the prison repeatedly for updates on his condition, but was provided with no information. Adding in a statement that the media has been provided with more information than Chauvin's attorneys or immediate family. Chauvin was sent to the facility in August of 2022 after he was transferred from a maximum security Minnesota state prison. He was serving a 21-year federal sentence in a civil rights case and a 22-and-a-half-year sentence for second-degree murder. Earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear Chauvin's appeal of his murder conviction. Chauvin's lawyers argued that he was denied the right to a fair trial by keeping the case in the state. The former officer is also making a separate bid to overturn his federal guilty plea, claiming new evidence shows he didn't cause Floyd's death. Cost MNS, NTD News. Elon Musk is set to meet with Israeli President Isaac Herzog today. Herzog will emphasize the need to combat a rise in anti-Semitism online. Representatives of hostage families are expected to join the closed-door meeting. A statement from Herzog's office says they will share the horrors of the October 7th terror attack and of the ongoing pain and uncertainty for those held captive. The visit comes following controversy over some of Musk's replies on social media posts some interpreted as anti-Semitic. At least a dozen major brands halted ad spending last week, including Disney, IBM, Fox Sports and the European Commission. Musk has since denied accusations of endorsing anti-Semitism. He wrote on X that any claims couldn't be further from the truth. And a manhunt is underway. Authorities are searching for a man who shot and wounded three college students of Palestinian descent in Vermont. 
Investigators suspect the shooting was a hate-motivated crime. Authorities say a man with a pistol shot the three 20-year-olds Saturday evening on a street near the University of Vermont in Burlington and then ran away. Police say two of the victims are U.S. citizens and the third is a legal U.S. resident. They added that two students were wearing the traditional checkered kafia scarf at the time of the attack. The shooting comes amid a rise in anti-Islamic and anti-Semitic incidents reported around the U.S. after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. In a statement, Burlington's police chief said, in this charged moment, no one can look at this incident and not suspect that it may have been a hate-motivated crime. Police say all three remained under medical care on Sunday. Two were in stable conditions, while one suffered much more serious injuries. The three went to universities in different states, but were gathered in Burlington for the Thanksgiving holiday at the home of one student's family. Protesters demanding a permanent ceasefire in Gaza shut down one of the most traveled bridges in New York City. Thousands of people blocked traffic on the Manhattan Bridge. The bridge reopened after being closed for hours. The demonstration occurred on one of the busiest travel days of the year. The group Jewish Voice for Peace organized the rally. The bridge connects Chinatown in Lower Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn. About 75,000 vehicles cross the bridge on a typical day. And now over to London, where tens of thousands of people gathered yesterday for a march against anti-Semitism. The march comes a day after large crowds turned out for a pro-Palestinian rally. Former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson also attended the march. He was joined by Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis and other senior government officials to express solidarity with the Jewish community. Organizers billed it as the largest gathering against anti-Semitism in London for almost a century. The march was organized amid concerns about rising tensions sparked by the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. The chief executive of the campaign against anti-Semitism said that the rally came after weeks of pro-Palestinian protests that had made the UK's capital a no-go zone for Jews. He said that anti-Semitic incidents in the UK have surged since the war began. He also condemned what he called appalling placards seen at the protests. This includes one showing a Star of David thrown in the bin with a caption that read, Please keep the world clean. Moving on, six teenagers are on trial today in Paris. Authorities accuse them of involvement in the beheading of French history teacher Samuel Paty. The teacher reportedly showed his pupils cartoons of Muhammad during a class on freedom of expression. The six minors face a variety of charges. A 15-year-old girl is charged with making a false accusation. She allegedly told her parents that Pati asked Muslim pupils to leave the room before showing the caricatures. It was established she wasn't in the class when it happened. The other five minors will be charged with premeditated criminal conspiracy or ambush. They are suspected of having pointed out to Petit to the alleged murder or helped in his exit from the school. The six could serve up to two and a half years if convicted. The hearings will last until early December and will be held behind closed doors. Eight adults also stand accused of related crimes and will appear before a special criminal court. Petit's alleged killer was shot dead by police soon after the attack. 
And China continues to grapple with a surge of respiratory illnesses, overwhelming hospitals. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the outbreak, which has affected many children. Doctors in China have encouraged parents to take their kids to a doctor right away if they have any symptoms, especially for babies under three months old. But some parents report that they waited up to eight hours to get their children to see a doctor, with long lines forming at pediatric hospitals. Footage on CCTV shows crowded waiting rooms with babies and children wearing oxygen masks. China's top health body urged hospitals nationwide on Sunday to extend service hours and set up more clinics. Health officials there say the spike in acute respiratory cases is due to a combination of pathogens, most prominently influenza, and cite other pathogens behind the rise in cases among the 5 to 14 age group, including the rhinovirus, a typical cause of the common cold, and mycoplasma pneumonia, a bacterial infection that usually affects younger children. The regime's claim that mycoplasma pneumonia was behind the recent spike has met with skepticism, with residents saying that they tested negative for mycoplasma. Some suspect that the country is grappling with the rebound in COVID-19 infections, as the infected showed similar symptoms such as cough, fatigue, and white lung. They suggest the Chinese Communist Party has directed officials and media to blame other pathogens because the party's leader has declared victory in combating the pandemic. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. When we come back, we take a look at one of the busiest shopping days of the year to see how the consumer spending is holding up. Major banks are shutting down branches across America. Find out how this affects you as we sit down with the host of Entity Business when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. As you can see here with us is NTD business host Don Ma to talk about how Americans set a new record for online spending on Black Friday. Consumers shelled out nearly $10 billion. So Don, how does that compare to last year? Well, Kevin, uh, this is a 7.5% jump compared to last year. Uh, so this is according to Adobe Analytics over the weekend. And this is uh, driven by surging uh, demand for electronics. Uh, like, you know, televisions, pretty popular on Black Friday, as always, smartwatches, audio equipment. And I don't know if you've seen the footage online uh, of, um, you know, this year's crowd compared to previous year's crowd. Uh, but it seems like there's actually fewer people in stores this year uh, from what I've seen in the footage. And it's no surprise because most shoppers actually did their browsing and buying with, with their phones. Um, so, of course, that would lead to fewer foot traffic. Uh, mobile purchases accounted for about $5.3 billion uh, in sales. And Adobe expects that uh, purchases made through smartphones this holiday will actually surpass those made on desktop computers, which is a first, actually. So it's a bit surprising there as well. Uh, online shoppers, uh, you know, as I mentioned last week, uh, are using buy now, uh, pay later, a significant portion of them. Uh, but, you know, despite online sales surging compared to last year, uh, in-store uh, sales as well has increased compared to last year as well. And that's according to MasterCard's Spending Pulse Insights. 
So that's interesting. And I know that American spending have really kept the economy going. And ahead of Black Friday, I think it sounded a bit different there. So is there any sign of consumer spending weakening too? Well, it's, it's certainly possible because some experts are citing things uh, such as uh, high housing costs, uh, rising credit card debt, uh, shrinking savings. So it's definitely a possibility. Uh, you know, for example, the principal economist at the conference board uh, thinks that headwinds are eventually going to make the consumer buckle. Uh, that's what he thinks. Uh, and, and here's just some pressures that uh, consumers are potentially feeling right now. I'll just give you a quick list here. Housing costs, highest in 40 years by some measurements. Uh, Americans carrying more debt, more than $500 billion have accumulated in the past two years. Um, so, you know, these are some possible signs that uh, it could be weakening the consumer. But, you know, as the saying goes, right, you never want to bet against the consumer. Um, you know, so we'll see, I mean, in, in 2024, how it holds up. Yeah, and going back to your first point, Don, you know, a lead analyst at the Adobe Digital, he's saying that we're seeing the emergence of this crafty kind of like, you know, really strategic consumer. And maybe we're seeing a lot of this Black Friday buying because of high inflation. People are trying to maximize their spending, you know, maximize their money so they can get the most out of it. Well, consumers have been choosy, so it's, it's no surprise that maybe a lot of people uh, have been waiting until Black Friday to make their purchases, uh, boosting sales. But, you know, uh, nothing's for certain. That could be a possibility. It could be another reason as well. And so another topic here, banks have actually started closing their local branches in some areas. So who's going to be affected by this, Don? Yeah, very good question here. Uh, so... In-person banking is about to become more difficult uh, for many people across America. Almost a dozen different banks have filed to close over 60 branches in multiple states. Top three banks filing for closures were PNC Bank, JP Morgan Chase, and Citizens Bank. Uh, the branch closures help banks increase their profit margins, but these closures could affect consumers from small towns. Uh, many small towns have become bank deserts where the closest bank is miles away. And according to the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, local jobs are lost. Small businesses, lending activity also could decline because uh, the rising use of digital banking uh, and that has decreased the need for physical bank branches. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like a challenge for certain people. Like my mom, she would be going to those physical branches still. So, yeah. But thank you so much, uh, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. I yep. appreciate your time this my morning. My pleasure. And we are moving to a break. Who likes movies? We take you to the locations where some flicks were filmed in New York City. Well-known buildings, iconic landmarks, and world-famous Central Park all make an appearance. Good morning and welcome back. This one is for all the movie buffs out there. And I have to say, I love myself a good movie night. Yeah, well, you know, GoldenEye, James Bond, that was a good movie. And then when he's jumping off the cliff to get his plane after he's mm. trying to escape, that's just one place that I would really like to visit, the actual set. Oh, you did scenery. some visiting out here. And I know, I, sometimes when you walk down the street, you see some movie sets out there. So I know that there is quite a few uh, movie filmings going yeah. on here. Yeah, and some yeah. people tell me that the actual setting is a lot bigger when you go there in person than looking mm -hmm. at it on the TV. But I got a chance to hang out with some true movie fans and see some of the places where movies were filmed right here in our city. Check it out. 
Lights, camera, action. We're about to tour the setting of some movies on the big screen filmed in the Big Apple, which ranks second on the list of cities in the world with the most number of movies filmed in it at a staggering 395,000. Let's check it out. King Kong climbed the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building was damaged in Godzilla's Rampage of Manhattan, and the Brooklyn Bridge provides an iconic backdrop in I Am Legend featuring Will Smith. So why is it that New York City attracts the cinema? A guide with on-location tours tells us. It holds a lot of hopes and dreams for a lot of people and I think it comes to symbolize so much for so many people. And I think it's such a versatile city. There is a neighborhood, there is a building, there is an area for everybody. No matter who you are, or what walk of life you're from, there's a place for you here. And so wherever you go, if you want to film a story, if you have a story to tell, there's a place in New York to tell it. Trump Tower served as the surrogate for Wayne Enterprises in The Dark Knight Rises. Speaking of former President Donald Trump, he appeared in Home Alone 2 when Macaulay Culkin asked him for directions to the Plaza Hotel that Trump owned at the time. I quite like hearing about Donald Trump owning the building and getting a cameo in it just because he owns the building. It's quite fascinating to see what happens in, in that kind of behind the scenes things that we don't see on the TV. And St. Patrick's Cathedral appears in the background as Tobey Maguire drops off the rescued MJ and Spider-Man. That's the flick in which none other than the Flatiron Building houses the fictional tabloid newspaper, The Daily Bugle. Uh, the favorite part uh, of the tour are the spots of this uh, Marvel um, uh, movies because we are big fans of all these Marvel movies, uh, the Spider-Man details and so on, yeah. And the Flatiron Building made an appearance in Mr. Popper's Penguins with Jim Carrey, too. But of all the locations in the world, Central Park tops the list for the site with the most movies filming scenes there. When Harry met Sally, all those. So hopefully we'll recognize a couple of the things here. But, I mean, New York is just so iconic. I mean, there's just so many things that we keep on when we're walking going, oh, we've seen this, oh, we know this. Guys are lucky to live here. Nothing strange about Central Park being the backdrop of 532 movies, but if there were something strange, who would you call? I'm an avid Ghostbusters fan, so, you know, when we go by the library and I, I, and I see those lines from that iconic first shot and you see the pillars and everything, you see that building, which has also been in a ton of other stuff as well, but when you see that, for me, that, it takes my breath away. Filming locations for Ghostbusters in New York City also include Columbia University, Hook and Ladder 8, Lincoln Center, and Columbus Circle, where the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man makes his march. Hmm. I don't. I have to say I don't remember <clears throat> all of them, but that's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of TV shows that are also filmed in New York, like mm -hmm. Friends. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, and there is some fun exhibition there too. Um, well, but. We are going to talk more about the news later, but we are heading to a one-minute break for now, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. Yeah. 
we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. The terrorist group Hamas seeks to extend a pause in fighting as a fourth group of hostages is set to be released today. Here are Israeli officials reacted with time for the temporary truce running out. Hamas is looking to extend its temporary truce with Israel. We sit down with an expert to take a look at the risks of such a deal. President Biden delivered remarks about the American girl released by Hamas. Hear what he had to say about the other American hostages being held. A former Kansas governor voices his support for Trump's re-election. Find out what prompted his 2024 endorsement. Black Friday is one of the busiest shopping days in the year. We take a closer look at how Americans are spending this holiday season. A lucky lottery ticket changes one man's life forever. Stay tuned to find out how a small error led to a massive payout. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Happy Monday, everyone. Today is November 27th. And today's top news developments over the weekend in the Israel-Hamas war. Today is the last day of the deal to temporarily pause fighting. Hamas is now looking to extend the pause by releasing more hostages in exchange for more prisoners. Israel says it's open to the exchange as per the terms of the original agreement, but vows to resume its offensive once it ends. The Hamas terrorist group released a third group of hostages yesterday in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. The group included four-year-old dual Israeli, U.S. Israeli citizen, I should say, Abigail Edan. The toddler saw her parents murdered by Hamas on October 7th. She's now reunited with family in Israel after spending her birthday last week as a captive in Gaza. Thirteen Israelis were released yesterday. An 84-year-old woman in the group was hospitalized and is in critical condition. Also released outside that deal yesterday were three Thai nationals and an Israeli-Russian dual citizen. Hamas is required to release a fourth group of hostages today under the deal brokered primarily by Qatar. 58 hostages have been released during the pause so far. 13 Israeli women and children each day and several foreign nationals outside the deal's terms. Israel released close to 120 Palestinian prisoners in the exchange. President Biden also says he hopes the pause can go on as long as hostages are being freed. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hostages coming home. After seven weeks spent in captivity, dozens of hostages kidnapped by Hamas have returned home. The four-day pause that began Friday reunited loved ones and allowed aid into Gaza. A delay in the release Saturday threatened to derail the deal over the specific terms. Hamas now says it wants to extend the truce after releasing a third group of hostages. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says one complicating factor is that other terrorist groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad are holding hostages too. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday said he told Biden Israel welcomes the framework of the deal to temporarily pause fighting if it includes the release of 10 additional hostages a day, but that Israel's military campaign to eliminate Hamas and free all hostages will resume with full force once the pause ends. 39 jailed Palestinians were released in Sunday's swap, none convicted of murder. The ambassador says there's a distinction to be made between the hostages and prisoners being exchanged. The prisoners that we released are people who were convicted uh, for participating in terror attacks. Uh, let's don't forget that Yichir Sinwar was released in such a deal by Israel in 2011. Look what we got. Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar was part of a thousand-plus prisoner swap in 2011 for a single Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. He was held hostage by Hamas for five years. Sinwar is now suspected to be one of the main organizers of the October 7th terrorist attacks. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Israel's military says it's eliminated five senior Hamas commanders just prior to the pause in the war. As for the humanitarian aid, the IDF says a 200-truck convoy of food, water and medical supplies entered Gaza through the Rafah crossing yesterday. And at the same time, we may be looking at a possible extension of the truce in Gaza. How likely is this? And are there any risks tied to it? We bring in David Wormser. He's a senior analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning. It's really good to have you first. Please tell me how this pause has been working out so far for both Israel and Hamas. Good. It's great to be with you, Evelyn. Um, well, it's it's worked out sort of. The Israelis have gotten uh, somewhere around almost 40 hostages already, uh, as well as uh, Thai hostages have been released in one Russian, as you mentioned in the uh, report. So, I, I mean, in terms of living hostages released, one, of course, is in critical condition and her situation is deteriorating. She wasn't given any medical attention and she has life-threatening conditions. So she is in... Uh, in very bad shape. But it, it, still, uh, you know, 40-some hostages are alive, safe. And that's a de that, that, that's what Israel was after. For them, the hostages are the premier issue. Uh, so it's worked out. But at the same time, there's been a lot of problems with the deal. Hamas has played games all along. And uh, they, they have not released the ones they've promised to release, nor in the combinations that they promised to release them. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, um we, I want to also talk about the possibility of extending the pause here. So what kind of interests do both sides have in an extension of a truce? That's Hamas and um, Israel. Okay, I'll, I'll start with Hamas. The main one for Hamas is the fact that when the Israelis went in, they went in very hard and heavy, and they threw Hamas on the defensive. Their lines of communications were cut. They're, they've lost contact with a lot of their own forces. Uh, and in general, I mean, everybody would appreciate the situation that when you're when you take a blow, you're off balance and you're falling apart. And the morale of the uh, forces, the Hamas forces, was sinking rapidly and the population clearly was beginning to turn against them because they were losing control. So the ceasefire gives them control. It allows them to get back in balance, reestablish communications, rebuild some of their military structure, uh, move missiles and other things into position so that they can uh, launch them on Israel again and so forth. So Hamas really needed this in order to reestablish its control. It was in grave danger of collapsing. The Israelis, it's the same thing as was before. They're just so 
uh, desperate to get their people back alive, uh, especially the ones that Hamas should have released already under the agreement, but didn't, the uh, babies. So uh, the Israelis, of course, are, are, are extremely eager to have their babies back uh, that are being held hostage, some, some uh, well under a year old. And some of the mothers of the babies that were not released with the, with the, with the other children that were released, that uh, uh, they should have been, but they weren't. Right. And uh, just quickly back to what you mentioned earlier, that um, Hamas hasn't released everyone they said they would. Because on one hand, there has been uh, one of the biggest concerns has been how Hamas could exploit a truce like this. And I know that earlier today there have been some issues with the lists um, reportedly released um, of the hostages that were supposed to be let go. Um, what have you seen on that end, on how Hamas, um, on Hamas's actions? Well, um, in terms of what Hamas is demanding, there was no uh, structure within the Israeli uh, concessions to get this deal of releasing certain types of prisoners. Namely, they agreed to release prisoners that didn't have blood on their hands. And Hamas now is asking for senior uh, uh, Hamas prisoners who do have blood on their hands and so forth. So they're asking for things that weren't in the agreement. The Israelis are not yet getting everybody that was in the agreement. So there's, of course, this, this grave problem uh, that, that Hamas just doesn't live up to its obligations and throws out new demands every day. And the Israelis generally have given in to those demands because they're eager to get their hostages back. Uh, but there is a certain point where the game's break the whole system. And, and, and the most important one is that the Israelis do need to restart this war and they do need to finish it. And, and I want to, on that point, just quickly, um, since we have, I hope we have a couple more seconds for one last question. Um, I, I wanted to know about the uh, start when it, the re war restarts again. And I see many people now pushing for a ceasefire, um, with uh, especially with aid coming into Gaza, seeing the destruction that was done there. What kind of pressure, um, with that kind of pressure, what do you think will the next stage of this war look like for Israel? Well, the question is whether it starts in a few hours after this fourth fourth hostage release prisoner exchange uh, happens. That's the end of the initial part of the deal. So it could start again tonight if there's no agreement to extend it. Uh, otherwise, I think the Israelis are talking about two to four days. As long as Hamas can provide 10 hostages that are alive each day, then they will extend it for up to four days. I'm not sure the Israelis believe there are hostages that are still alive beyond that. Uh, Hamas still holds 100, nearly 180 uh, hostages or bodies of hostages. Uh, right. So, so it, we're talking either a day to four days. Uh, but Israel really is determined to restart this because for it, if Hamas survives this war, it is, it is a catastrophe, both strategically, regionally, uh, in terms of its image in the region and its and its validity in the region. But more importantly, what was done to it was such a traumatic event and betrayal of trust right. in terms of the previous ceasefires that the Israelis just know a ceasefire is just a, a time where Hamas will rebuild to do this again. And they have said, and Hamas has said it will do it again. That's certainly So the Israelis are not eager here. to leave them there. Yes, I, I, that's certainly something to keep in mind here. Thank you for shedding some light on this and your insights. David Wormser, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Evelyn.
and we are moving on to break. Coming up after the break, a new endorsement for former President Trump's 2024 election campaign. Former Kansas Governor Jeff Collier voiced his support and shared his reason for the endorsement. Former President Trump takes his presidential campaign to a South Carolina football game where interstate rivals battled it out on, on the gridiron. What impact will Michael Bloomberg's half-billion-dollar investment for green energy have? A reporter suggests it'll raise energy prices. And what about pollution? Find out. One small mistake leads to a massive payout, changing one Michigan man's life forever. Stay tuned to find out more. Welcome back. Former Kansas Governor Jeff Collier is endorsing former President Trump for re-election. Collier made his statements in favor of the former president in a Newsweek column last week, following a visit to Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Collier said his endorsement is based on the former president's promise to lower health care costs and drug prices. He added that a new Trump term would also see speedier medical treatments, protection of Medicare, and an end to the overdose epidemic. According to Collier, President Trump would also remove red tape in research and development of new and alternative medical treatments. The former governor also voiced his support for President Trump based on his immigration policies. He said that the American people deserve a president who is committed to securing the nation's borders and ending the ongoing opioid crisis. Former President Donald Trump was in South Carolina on Saturday. The presidential candidate attended a college football game alongside more than 80,000 fans. Trump arrived at the stadium to chants of We Want Trump from fans at the game. A campaign video shows Trump distributing boxes of popcorn to an enthusiastic crowd, many holding up their cell phones to take pictures of him. Another video shared by his campaign shows the 2024 GOP frontrunner waving to fans at the game from the press box, while many waved back and cheered. At halftime, Trump walked onto the field with Governor Henry McMaster, with the crowd erupting in loud cheers along with some isolated boos. The former president walked around, posed for photos, and waved to the fans. The Palmetto Bowl featured South Carolina versus Clemson University, with Clemson coming up victorious. And billionaire philanthropist Michael Bloomberg is pledging $500 million to replace U.S. electricity generation with wind and solar. I spoke to Kevin Stockland, a reporter for the Epic Times, who talks about this push to get coal out and bring clean energy in for power generation. And he's also the producer of The Shadow State. He talks about the significance of this. Take a look. This initiative aims to retire uh, all of our coal plants and ultimately our gas plants as well. And the concern that's being raised is that this is the stable source of power for our electric grid. And taking this out makes us utterly uh, dependent on weather, whether that's the wind or the sun. Um, and so the concern is that this could destabilize our grid, uh, making rolling blackouts the norm and potentially leading to long-term damage to the electric grid. Well, we know that wind isn't always blowing and sometimes clouds obscure the sun, but what is this capacity factor and why is it so much lower for wind and solar compared to nuclear and fossil fuels? 
So the uh, with capacity factor, we measure the capacity that we've added, which is the maximum potential use that we could get out of a power source, whether that's nuclear or coal, wind or solar. But the capacity factor measures how much of that we can actually use. And so the capacity factor for nuclear is close to 100%. Once we build these plants, we can use them all the time. With uh, coal and gas, it's also very high. Their usage is lower because we don't use them as much. But with wind and solar, the capacity factor is generally in the 15 to 25% range. It means that of all the capacity that you're building with wind and solar, you're only going to be able to use generally 15 to 25% of it because of the weather. Okay, so that's a huge contrast in capacity factor between these two sources. But what happens when companies are forced to move away from fossil fuel production of energy and then go to wind and solar? How does that affect the capacity factor? Well, so we've seen uh, Germany is about a decade ahead of us in terms of this transition. They've been doing it about 10 years before, 10 to 20 years before we started. Um, what they find is that um, electric bills tend to go through the roof the more of this that they add. So they've doubled their capacity through adding wind and solar, but they are not producing any additional electricity. And in addition, the cushion, the emergency cushion of 20% that most utilities have of capacity over peak demand is being eroded. Um, and so you're seeing the system become less reliable. When you have any sort of weather issues, like what you saw in Texas with the storm URI, um, the grid tends to break down because they don't have a reserve anymore to uh, cover for peak demand or, or weather events that take out some, some aspects of production. So, Kevin, we've established that there are higher energy prices associated with this green energy, and then also it's a less reliable grid. But is there a trade-off here for coal-fired plants that now produce pollution, but they may be a cheaper alternative for energy. Have they, have they been able to reduce some of those emissions of these toxic substances through EPA initiatives? Well, I think they are trying to produce uh, cleaner coal, and certainly gas has been a major factor in reducing uh, CO2 emissions throughout the U.S., transitioning from coal to gas plants. Um, but what we're seeing in the construction of wind and solar, uh, that, that requires all sorts of strip mining to get at the cobalt and the lithium to produce batteries and solar panels. That then gets shipped to China to get refined there. All of that takes tremendous CO2 emissions and then constructing these new plants and the transmission lines and copper and everything else that you need to do that. So there, there is no such thing as clean energy. And in addition to that, when you build wind and solar, you need to also build backup systems for when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, and that is typically natural gas. And so you're having to build a dual system and all of the CO2 emissions that come with that. When you add it all up, we're not actually gaining anything through this transition to wind and solar in terms of reducing CO2 emissions. It's definitely important to be aware that the actual power generation itself is not the only part that contributes to what goes into our atmosphere. Kevin Stocklin, Epic Times reporter and documentary filmmaker of the Shadow State, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Americans set a new record for online spending on Black Friday after shelling out nearly $10 billion. We spoke to Don Ma, the host of NTD Business, earlier to give us the details on this. I don't know if you've seen the footage online uh, of, um, you know, this year's crowd compared to previous year's crowd, uh, but it seems like there's actually fewer people in stores this year uh, from what I've seen in the footage. And it's no surprise because most shoppers actually did their browsing and buying with, with their phones. 
Um, so of course, that would lead to fewer foot traffic. Uh, mobile purchases accounted for about $5.3 billion uh, in sales, and Adobe expects that uh, purchases made through smartphones this holiday will actually surpass those made on desktop computers, which is the first actually, so it's a bit surprising there as well. Uh, online shoppers, uh, you know, as I mentioned last week, uh, are using buy now, uh, pay later, a significant portion of them. Uh, but, you know, despite online sales surging compared to last year, uh, in-store uh, sales as well has increased compared to last year as well. And that's according to MasterCard's Spending Pulse Insights. So that's interesting. And I know that American spending have really kept the economy going. And ahead of Black Friday, I think it sounded a bit different there. So is there any sign of consumer spending weakening too? Well, it's, it's certainly possible because some experts are citing things uh, such as uh, high housing costs, uh, rising credit card debt, uh, shrinking savings. So it's definitely a possibility. Uh, you know, for example, the principal economist at the conference board uh, thinks that headwinds are eventually going to make the consumer buckle. Uh, that's what he thinks. Uh, and, and here's just some pressures that uh, consumers are potentially feeling right now. I'll just give you a quick list here. Housing costs, highest in 40 years by some measurements. Uh, Americans carrying more debt, more than $500 billion have accumulated in the past two years. But thank you so much, uh, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. I yep. appreciate your time this My morning. My pleasure. And this has been an especially lucky Thanksgiving holiday for one man from Illinois who cashed in his winning lottery ticket. Every few weeks, Michael Sopichdahl drives to Michigan to eat at his favorite restaurant, and every time he also makes sure to buy a Lucky for Life lottery ticket. Usually, Sopichdahl buys 10 or 20 chances, but last September, the clerk accidentally gave him 10 chances on each ticket, and that mistake paid off. Sopichdahl won $25,000 a year for life. He recently cashed in his ticket and opted for the one-time lump payment. That will pay him $390,000. He says he plans to use the money to travel and is saving the rest. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine just rubbing the, uh, just looking at it and being like, wow, I have 25000 every year now. What an experience. And all over a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And you know, apparently the game's website was saying that the chances of that happening were one to over 1.8 million. So lucky guy, congratulations. Wow, yeah. yeah. What are the ads on that? That's, awesome. that's incredible. Um, all right, uh, we are wrapping our, up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our news today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.